So we are continuing on in a sermon series, Ken started last week, that we're calling The Elements of Worship. And we're talking about some of the individual parts of our, our worship service together in hopes that these rituals that we perform every week will maybe take on some greater meaning for us as a community. So Ken last week started by preaching about the Sarum Prayer. That's that prayer we pray together every week, that God be in my head and in my understanding, God be in my eyes and in my looking. And I would say, if you missed that one, that would actually be worth listening to, because I think Ken's looking at expanding a little bit of the Sarum Prayer and some practices around it for Lent. So we're going to be spending some extra time with that one. And today, we're going to talk about communion, one of my favorite things. You know, sometimes you might hear communion called something like the Eucharist, which is kind of an odd word. So Eucharist simply comes from the, the Greek word Eucharisto. See how I said it? Eucharisto. <laughs> Sounds more Italian. It means thanksgiving. So, you know, in the, in the traditional Eucharist blessing that Ken or me or Caroline or someone gives every week, we start, for I receive from the Lord what I also passed unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving Eucharisto, after giving thanks, he broke it. The word communion also comes from Greek, and it's a derivative of the word koinonia. And it evokes the idea that when we're sharing this symbolic meal that we have up here, that we're communing both with God and with each other. Now, there are more than 30,000 Christian denominations in the world, and I think it's really remarkable that we all share this ritual of eating bread and of drinking wine or grape juice together, and that this tradition is held for more than 2,000 years. And while we don't agree on every aspect of the ritual, like who can participate or how exactly it's done, we agree on enough of it that you could take communion really anywhere in the world, in any part of the church, and basically understand the symbolism of it. You know, I've taken communion in Korean megachurches and in underground Somali churches in East Africa and in Tibet. And in all of these places, it's different, but you still understand the symbolic importance of the actual act of taking communion. It's symbolic of Jesus's body. It's what holds the church together and it gives us more continuity than maybe any other sacrament or belief that we have. And yet we don't talk that much about what it is. And it's really loaded with meaning. I mean, you could write an entire dissertation on it, but I'm just gonna try and break it down into three parts this morning. So first I'd like to talk about it a little bit in its original Jewish context and how that influences our interpretation of the sacred meal. Second, I'd like to unpack the specifically Christian symbolism. And then we'll talk a little bit about the prophetic element of it and what it means that people from all walks of life share in this meal every week. So to start with, Jesus was Jewish, right? He wasn't a Christian. When I was writing, all I could hear in my mind was like Adam Sandler. He was a Jew. <laughs> Jesus was a Jew. And he and his disciples, his friends, they were in the midst of celebrating the Passover when he broke that bread before the meal and then later after the meal was over, he took the cup and passed it around. So the scene of that very first communion meal, the Last Supper, is this. It's a Thursday, and Jesus was going to be crucified the very next day. And he could tell that the tide was turning against him in Jerusalem, which is where he was celebrating the Passover. And so that Thursday morning, he woke up, and he called his friends, Peter and John, to him, and he told them this. He said, go and, go and enter into the gates of the city. So Jerusalem, you know, has a wall around it and there's several gates. So he's telling us, go into one of the old gates of the city and as soon as you get inside of there, you're gonna find a man who's holding a jug of water and he's waiting for you. And what you're to do is you're to follow this man to a home. And as soon as you get to that home, ask for the owner of the home. 
and then say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room that I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And then the owner will show you to an upstairs room. Right, so Jesus is taking really great care to cloak this last meal with his friends in secrecy. You know, he's kind of got coded words and he's got people with sort of these secret tasks that are leading him to secret rooms. And he seemed to know by this point that his friend Judas was going to betray him. And so I think perhaps he didn't want all of the disciples to know where they were gonna eat that night. Because if they knew and if, Jesus, or if Judas found out, he might lead the authorities there during the middle of the meal. And I think Jesus really wanted to eat that meal with his friends. Or maybe he was just hiding from the authorities. But the first thing that he says when he sits down to eat with all of his friends that night, according to the Gospel of Luke, he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I won't eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So Jesus, this very human part of him, I think he really wanted this last meal with his friends. I was thinking, like, if I found out that I was going to die tomorrow, I'd want to have a banquet with the people that I love the most. Preparations for a Passover meal, they generally take all day. A lamb is slaughtered, it's prepared, it's cooked. Have any of you guys ever done a Passover meal? Have any of you ever been to one? Oh, I know Lisa has. A few of you have done a Passover meal. So the story that's told every Passover in Jewish homes all over the world, has been for thousands of years, is the recounting of how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, oh, so many years ago. And so as you're sitting down to this meal with your friends and with your family, you're remembering how the Egyptian empire turned the Hebrew people into slaves and how they were suffering. And you're remembering how the people, they cried out to God in their misery and in their anguish, and that the Bible says that God heard the cries of the misery and he had compassion. And so then God went to Moses and he talked uh, to Moses through that burning bush. I think I preached on it in November, the burning bush. And he asked Moses to go to the Pharaoh of Egypt and go and to demand that Pharaoh let my people go. And as that story goes, we know the story. The Pharaoh says, nah, why would I do that? And so a plague comes on them. And then the Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, okay, you can, you can go. Oh, wait, no, you can't. And then another plague comes. And that's how it goes. Frogs, locusts, darkness, all of these different plagues, right? Yes, no plague, yes, no plague, for a total of 10 plagues. And for the final plague, which was just terrible, the Hebrew people were instructed to sacrifice a lamb and to place its blood on their doorposts so that the Spirit of God would pass over them. And that's where that word Passover comes from. And after that last one, the Pharaoh did let the people go. And he said that they could leave Egypt and they left in a tremendous hurry. And so the story goes that they took only what it was that they could carry with them and that they didn't have time to bring much food or much bread. And so tradition has it that they took unleavened bread, bread that's made with no yeast because there wasn't any time to bake bread that would have to rise. Now there was actually a festival of unleavened bread that predates the Passover and it might have just been sort of rolled into that over time. But the story that's told is that the people took what they could which is why our communion bread is flat. Like you'll usually have like a cracker or a flat bread like we use here. And there are several different foods that are eaten during a Passover meal. And those foods are meant to help recount the story over and over again, faithfully through generations. So oftentimes you'll see like a, a tray in the middle of a table and it'll have bowls with these different elements on it. Correct me if there's anything I'm missing here. Lisa, a, what, a Seder plate? It's called the Seder plate. 
And so first you have the bitter herbs, which are often, it's like often horseradish that you eat. And that's to remind the people of their bitter lot during slavery under the Egyptians. And then there's usually a vegetable. I've often had cucumbers. I don't know if you have different ones, but there's usually a bowl of salt water and you dip the cucumber into the salt water and eat it. And the salt water is symbolic of the tears of the slaves under the Egyptians, their anguish. And there's always charoset. And what charoset is, is it's like this apple walnut combination. It often has like some cinnamon or wine in it. And it's this sort of chunky fruit and nut salad. And that represents the mortar that the, uh, that the Hebrew slaves had to put between the bricks as they would have to build things for the Egyptians. So it's remembering their hard labor. And then there's a shank bone to remind people of God's might and that God rescued them. And then finally, there's usually a hard-boiled egg, which symbolizes mourning and loss. And then additionally, there's three, pl- three pieces of bread, usually matzah now. I don't know if it was matzah in Jesus's time or not. I don't know when matzah was invented. But matzah is like a cracker. But you have three pieces of flat bread or matzah that are placed on the table during the meal. And the middle one is broken during the feast. And that's probably what Jesus was breaking when he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then throughout a Passover meal or throughout the Seder, four different cups of red wine are drunk. So the first Seder I ever went to, and I've been to quite a few now, I didn't know this. So I filled my cup like normal and then there comes to a point in the Seder where you you have to like drink it pretty quick. And then you do it again, and then you do it again, and then you do it again. And so after drinking, you know, a couple of them, I started to catch on like, oh yeah, just don't fill your glass quite as far. (laughs) But I was loaded the first Seder I attended. I think Andrea was probably there and Laura Stratton if she was there because we were at at one at Bob's house together. And I just remember thinking, okay, note to self. (laughs) At regular Sabbath feels and festival meals, usually two glasses of wine are served. But this is always doubled for the Passover because it's a way to like extra celebrate the freedom that was won from Egypt. Right, so this is where the bread and the wine find their origins in our Eucharist. But it still begs the question, why did Jesus say that these represented him? You know, the, the crux of the Passover celebration is remembering what it was like to be oppressed, what it was like to be an enslaved people group, and remembering God's rescue from that kind of tyranny, and then subsequently, how they, the Jewish people, were commanded not to treat other people the way they were treated. Right? In fact, there's, there's kind of an interesting thing about time in the Jewish imagination. Now, some of you might remember, I think it was last winter when Rabbi Mark Kinzer came and preached here. And he talked about how in Jewish thought, every person, every Jew was present at Mount Sinai at the giving of the Ten Commandments. That somehow, like, it's almost like time collapsed and all people were there from all times. And so the meaning of that is, is that every person carries a piece of the mosaic for understanding how we sort of interpret um, how it is that we are to live out life faithfully to God. Everyone carries a piece of that. And there's a similar imagination that goes on with the Passover meal. And that when people sit down for the Seder, they become the escaping Hebrews. Right, Jews... Jewish people experience themselves as present or as one with those who are being rescued as if time has sort of come together and all the people who have gone before us are present with those who are here and now. And so this practice of remembering, this practice of putting themselves in the place of the oppressed, it develops empathy and compassion on a collective level. It's like a culture-shaping act that we who are not Jewish, I think, can learn from. Is over and over in the Hebrew scriptures, you know, what we Christians sometimes derogatorily call the Old Testament, 
All through the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, we see God reminding his people, you're not to become like the Egyptians. Remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. Remember, you know what it was like to be mistreated. Remember, do not become a tyrant toward those who live in your land. You are not to be like that. You are to treat the foreigner and the widow with respect and dignity, and you're to care for the poor among you. Remember, you were once slaves. Remember, remember, remember. And of all the people in all the world, the Jewish people do know what it is like to be mistreated at the hands of powerful empires and nation states. You know, they've been the, the world's scapegoats many, many a time through history. And God knows that the temptation for anyone is that when you're finally in like a little brief window of history, when you're not being mistreated, when you're in that position of power, the temptation is to then misuse that power and to treat other people poorly. Right, to sort of toss away that collective memory of mistreatment. When I was writing this, I was remembering a little bit of like Rwanda in the 90s. What was it like the, the Tutsis killed the Hutu and then as soon as the Hutu took power, they turned around and killed the Tutsis. It just was like a cycle that continued. I think about that even here in the United States. The first white settlers were victims of religious persecution in their own countries. But it sure didn't take them long to come over here and to start to mistreat you know, Native Americans and to take on their own African slaves and to perpetuate injustices of our, of our own, forgetting what that is like to be an oppressed people. And so this then is the reminder that God is giving people over and over. He's saying, you know what it's like to be mistreated. So don't do that to other people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think it must have been really surprising to Jesus' disciples, you know, when he took that bread and he said that it was his body. And then at the end of the meal, taking the cup and saying that's his blood. Like, that's a weird thing to say. It's my blood poured out for you. Many of the prayers and the recitations that go on in a Passover meal, they're pretty scripted. So the disciples must have wondered, like, why Jesus was going off script. What does he mean his body is broken and his blood is shed? And what Jesus seems to be doing is connecting his now imminent death. Like he knows he's gonna die. He knows he's probably gonna die in the next couple of days. And he's connecting that with the story of God rescuing people from oppression and with them being the kind of people who are supposed to treat others as equals, right? Of not tyrannizing others and of helping them bring justice and peace to the earth as if somehow through his death, this can be accomplished. Now, I know some of you guys are like so sick of hearing about Rene Girard. <laughs> Rachel laughed. <laughs> she probably really is. But I, I, I've gotten to the point where I can no longer talk about the symbolism of the communion table without at least evoking some of his ideas. So I'm going to go through it briefly. And I thought maybe we could indulge, indulge me just for a minute, especially for like the serendipity doodah moms. So I'm going to say a special hi to We've got about 200 moms that join us online. They're moms of gay kids or LGBTQ kids. So Gerard was a scholar who studied myths and literature and history. And he noticed that in all times and in all places, humans tend to become rivals with each other. And we tend to mirror the desires of other humans for power, for influence, for money. And he says that when there's enough rivalry, um, on a large scale especially, but when there's enough rivalry within a group for these things, violence breaks out. And so to prevent widespread violence, groups learned that they could identify a scapegoat onto which they could project all of their anxiety. So instead of all against all, instead of everybody just sort of fighting each other, everybody, it would be like all against one or all against a minority group. It's like channeling all of the group energy onto one person or to one minority group. 
And what they do is they can falsely accuse those scapegoats of something that's actually true of the group themselves. Right? We tried to make scapegoats out of, say, like some of the Muslims with our Muslim ban, so, you know, so-called, you know, where we try and say, oh, well, they're terrorists. What's actually more true of white America, right? It's something like 92% of all terrorist attacks in the last 30, 40 years are white American men. We're the terrorists, but then you project that anxiety onto a smaller group. And once a scapegoat is identified, a mob can form around those accusations. Now we've resisted, I think, as a culture, that particular one. But sometimes the mob just forms and the accusations start to solidify. And if the event plays all the way out, if not enough people stand up for and defend the scapegoat, then the scapegoat is either killed, exiled, deported, beat up, isolated, jailed, any number of things that we do to sort of get them out of the group. And the thing is, is that scapegoating works. It really works for achieving temporary group peace. It manages to unify anxious groups. And when a scapegoat is killed or expelled, there is a sense of peace that overcomes the group after it happens. But what Gerard tells us is that that's a temporary peace. Because if you keep peace in a group by sacrificing group members, by sacrificing the vulnerable, you have to keep sacrificing people to keep that peace. So Jesus became humanity's representative scapegoat that humans, Jew and Gentile alike, representing all of humankind, we projected our own anxieties, might say our sin, projected things that are true about ourselves onto him, an innocent man, and we killed him. Caiaphas, who was the high priest the year that Jesus was killed, he knew this. In the Gospel of John, he says to a group of anxious people, he says, you guys don't know anything at all you don't realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Caiaphas knew it. It's better for you that one man die than that the whole nation perish. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Caiaphas knew the power of channeling group energy onto one person. And he knew that if Jesus could be accused of blasphemy and of plotting to overthrow the Romans, that enough people would rally around those charges to sort of relieve the social pressure valve. And then the temple guards could come and Jesus could be put to death to keep the peace, which is what happened. Right, so in many ways, Jesus' sacrifice remains unremarkable and that it bears resemblance to the stories of so many other innocent scapegoats throughout history, including the men and women, like there were tens of thousands of men and women who were crucified by the Romans. Jesus is another man who was crucified by the Roman Empire. And yet his story also remains immensely remarkable and that he doesn't stay sacrificed. That's why the Easter story is so crucial to the Christian narrative. Jesus died, but he also rose. And so in raising his son from the grave, God, he overturned our collective human verdict of the scapegoat. Right? With the resurrection of this completely innocent man, God revoked our human pronouncement of guilty. Jesus, the representative scapegoat of all scapegoats throughout history, the innocent scapegoats that we declare guilty, God says, this is null and void. This is ridiculous. It doesn't work. This entire cycle of human violence is foolish and void. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. It is finished. Stop sacrificing each other. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right, so the resurrection of Jesus ended the need for this sacrificial system. It rendered it powerless. And it laid bare the purpose of these continuous ritual killings that we do or exiles within our groups, which is to maintain group stability. And it displayed the futility of those acts. Long-term peace cannot be achieved through scapegoating. 
When we follow Jesus, we're renouncing our proclivity to do that kind of violence to other people. We cannot scapegoat undocumented immigrants. We cannot scapegoat people of color. We cannot scapegoat Muslims. We cannot scapegoat LGBTQ people. We cannot scapegoat if we follow Jesus. And that, in fact, is the essence of what it means to be a follower. The Greek word for spirit, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is paraclete, which means the advocate. The Hebrew word for Satan is the accuser. Right? When we convert, so to speak, we are converting from operating in the spirit of the accusing mob, the accusers, into the spirit of the advocate, being infused with the Holy Spirit, championing the vulnerable and the oppressed. And so during communion, we're reminding ourselves every week, week in and week out, that Jesus was the last scapegoat, that he was unjustly treated and that God vindicated him and that we in turn are to treat others justly and to welcome them into full belonging in the community of Jesus. Right? So in the Passover tradition, right, in the Jewish tradition, they would say, remember how you were treated by Egypt? Do you remember that? Don't do that to other people. Well, what the Christians would say is our version of it. Remember how Jesus was treated? His body was broken and his blood was shed? Don't do that to people around you. Stop. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And the way I've come to understand that is that we're proclaiming the unjust death of the final scapegoat until Jesus comes again. It is finished. No more of that. Repent and be filled with the spirit of the advocate. Proclaim this as good news for the good of all humankind. And relinquishing our temptation then to scapegoat others is the key to building peaceful, just, and loving communities. And Jesus knew that. And he tied his death and his resurrection to that larger narrative to remind us. Right? He says, every time you tell this story, every time you celebrate the Passover, every time you talk about God rescuing you from the imperial tyranny of Egypt or of Rome or of America or from your church, God forbid, or from whatever it is, remember the secret to not turning into what you despise. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that a person would lay down their life for their friends. Right? We lay down our own life and our own power before we unjustly rob someone else of the same. Amen. Which leads us into the prophetic element of communion. Now I say the word prophetic. What I mean are things that call us to an ideal. Right? So I think of like prophetic people and prophetic communities. They're ones that lean into what should be. And they try their best to enact like the ideal as best that they can in order to call other people into a more just and perfect world. So at the table of Jesus, we declare everyone is welcome, right? So we prophetically declare and proclaim that everyone is welcome in community. And as 21st century Americans, I'm not sure if we fully grasped how jarring that would have been for people in the first century. The idea that men could eat with women and that the poor could eat with the rich and the educated with the uneducated and Jews with Gentiles and the slaves could eat with the free. You know, it's like, and, and the queers can eat with the straights at this table? That's incredible. And we're declared family, brothers and sisters. And at the table of Jesus, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter your level of belief. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. You're welcome. And no one is allowed to impose their own table rules on anyone else. No one is allowed to say, oh, you know, yeah, but you can't serve any of the food. Or, oh, you know, you need to eat at a side table. Or, oh, you need to be silent, you women. No one's allowed to do that. The only table rule is that you in turn must welcome others. You must forgive others as you are forgiven. And that we have to understand that none of us has done anything to earn our place at this table and that this is what we Christians call grace. 
maybe the most beautiful concept in all of humankind, grace. We've done nothing to earn it. And we, in turn, must extend that grace and that mercy that we have received to other people. So Eucharisto is thanksgiving. And every week we give thanks that Jesus showed us how to love. And we give thanks that we also have a place at this table free of charge. And we build this ritual into our lives so that it becomes part and parcel of who we are and it becomes our instinct and it becomes our reflex toward others. And it helps us understand deep down that without Jesus, we might not recognize our own propensity to scapegoat and to sin against other people. And that we need the grace and the goodness of God as much as anyone else. And we need to be reminded that we also are beloved of God and that we are fully welcome here and that we are wanted at this table. And for me, like, the communion is like the most beautiful ritual. It's where it's at. I don't have this in my sermon notes, but I'm just thinking I'll share it. Like one of the things that was most painful for me after being sort of expelled from a faith community for being gay was that, that feeling of like, oh, I, I, I thought I belonged and I don't. And one of the most profound things happened at that Why Christian Conference. My wife spoke at that, Penny was there, and I was allowed up to help serve the communion to this whole cathedral full of people. And I just wept and wept and wept because there's such a power in the subversive nature of that meal when it's being done well, when it's welcoming everyone. It was like, oh yeah, that's right. I am part of this family. I am part of this group that loves Jesus. I'm part of this group that welcomes everybody no matter what. And that's, that's the prophetic element of the table that we eat at every single week. Every single person in here can come up and is part of it. You know, I was watching I'm just like going off script now. <laughs> I don't want to give off any, I don't want to give away like any spoilers for Star Wars and stuff, but, because I loved the movie. <laughs> you know, like there's like, there's that sense of like in some of these movies, like Star Wars and Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings that like, and Hunger Games, that like there's like this little underground rebellion that's, you know, fighting for the good in the world. And when I came away from that Star Wars one, I just thought, man, that should be Christianity. That should be us and we should be the ones who are like the most popular amongst like the poor and the helpless in the world. It should be like the secret sign of like, I'm one of those people that eats that meal that welcomes everybody. You know, that's a big deal. That's who we are. And I think it's time to like reclaim this really prophetic, profound element of our character and of our nature that shapes us the world over. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Meditation. <laughs> All right, we usually do like a minute or two of quiet meditation, and I'd like for us to do that. And I thought that, well, one, we'll take some breaths and center ourselves, but as we just enjoy the silence before God, I would suggest that maybe we picture that banquet feast that we're all around. You can do it here. You can make it very earthy in your own home, or you can imagine it with Jesus in the, in the next stage and with people who have gone before you. And just imagine yourself enjoying this banquet feast with all of your favorite people and of Jesus turning to you in that and saying, I have deeply desired to eat this meal with you. I'm just gonna give some space, let that play out and if Jesus wants to say more to you in that space, that would be amazing. But if, let's just like let the Holy Spirit come and speak to us. So come Lord Jesus.
have deeply desired to eat this meal with you. Jesus, we thank you for this meal. We thank you for what you did for us. We thank you that you beckon us to open our arms wide in love. We thank you for laying down your life. And we thank you that your life was vindicated. May we also go out and extend this same grace and welcome and love and forgiveness to those around us in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.